This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, You will recall uh, that last month, as we've made our way through Ephesians this year, as our kind of sub-series every few weeks, as we are walking our way through Genesis as our main series, we're walking our way through Ephesians as kind of a sub-series throughout this year. And you'll recall that last month we started Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, Paul exhorted Christians to be imitators of God, to be imitators of God. And it was very important for us, as we discussed these verses, that we were not just to be imitators of God, but to be imitators of God as beloved children, as beloved children. As we said last time, that Christians are, in fact, beloved children of God. You know, it's in my experience that we would do well to remind each other of that truth more often. What a dear truth it is to know that we, brothers and sisters in Christ, are beloved children of our God. You know, J.I. Packer in Knowing God, that wonderful classic, said that there are two great gospel blessings. One gospel blessing is the gospel blessing of justification. Justification, that judicial declaration that we are righteous in Jesus Christ by faith. And how incredible it is to be righteous in Christ. If you're honest with yourself, you know that you are not righteous. You know that you are not perfect and holy as God is perfect and holy. But by faith in Jesus Christ, God, the just judge, declares us not guilty. He declares us forgiven. He declares us righteous in Jesus Christ, justified. But Packer goes on to say that as great as it is to be declared not guilty and righteous, to be justified by a just judge, how much greater still is it to be adopted, to be called a beloved child of a loving father? And so let me remind you this morning, beloved, that you are a beloved child of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul went on to encourage us in those verses that we ought to imitate our Father by walking in love and walking in light. We ought to love God by living in obedience to God's commands, and we ought to walk in light by confessing our own sins and helping others bring their sin into the light of God's grace. And so, be imitators of God as beloved children by walking in love and walking in light. That was Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. And here, the Apostle Paul will exhort us that as we walk in love and as we walk in light, we should also walk in wisdom. We should also walk in wisdom. And even more than that, these verses, Paul tells us, is the key to walking in love and walking in light and walking in wisdom, and that is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. 
It's on page 919 of the Pew Bibles if you're using one of those. Page 919, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. We will consider these seven verses this morning in two sections. Seven verses in two sections. Verses 15, 16, and 17, walk in wisdom. 15, 16, and 17, walk in wisdom. Verses 18, 19, 20, and 21, be filled with the Spirit. Walk in wisdom and be filled with the Spirit. Well, let's pray. Let's ask, let's ask God to be with us as we consider his word this morning. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us as we come to receive the food of your holy word. Oh God, take your truth and plant it deep in us that the word of Christ may dwell richly in us. Shape and fashion us by your Holy Spirit into the image of your beloved Son, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, first, first, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Paul writes, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The Apostle Paul commands Christians to walk in wisdom. He commands Christians to walk in wisdom, and in particular, walk in wisdom in the way that we use our time and the way we use our minds. And really, you could say this is comprehensive of all the Christian life. We're to walk in wisdom in the way that we use our time, in the way that we use our minds, and to walk in wisdom in every facet of our lives. And brothers and sisters, how timely is God's word for us? How timely is God's word for us? Every one of us in this very moment, in this room, in one way or another, is in need of divine wisdom. We're in need of an exhortation from God's word to stop acting like a fool and to walk in wisdom. Certainly as a church, we need the admonition to not walk as fools, but to walk in this world before our wise father as wise and beloved children of God, to walk in wisdom as a church to make known the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3.10. That is our walking, our marching orders, to make known the manifold wisdom of God as a church. The Bible has a great deal to say about divine wisdom. In fact, we call an entire section of the Old Testament uh, Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes and depending on who you talk to, Psalms and Song of Solomon, we call it wisdom literature. It's full of wisdom. Paul told Timothy in the New Testament that among other things, the scriptures make us wise 
unto salvation. The Bible has a great deal to say about divine wisdom, and you can rest assured that we are not going to walk through all the possible nooks and crannies of that this morning. I would encourage you to go read chapter 10 of J.I. Packer's Knowing God, which will help you put a lot of the biblical puzzle pieces together as it relates to divine wisdom. But we will this morning be talking about how we approach the Bible to understand wisdom. Wisdom is a uniquely difficult attribute to define. For some of you who have PhDs, you have doctorates in philosophy, which is a doctorate in the love of wisdom or the study of wisdom. For some of us who studied under PhDs, we know that's not always the case. Wisdom is a uniquely difficult attribute to define. To define. Wisdom is not merely factual knowledge or intellectual assent or capability. Wisdom is not merely uh, this idea of knowing certain things. It's possible to possess great knowledge without any wisdom. It's possible to be a very clever fool. But Christian wisdom, Christian wisdom is knowing how to apply godly principles to providential circumstances. Christian wisdom is knowing how to apply godly principles to providential circumstances. Wisdom itself is rooted in God. Wisdom is an attribute of God. The scriptures are clear that God is the most wise of all beings. Time would fail me to quote scripture after scripture that describe the wisdom of God in creation, the wisdom of God in providence, and the wisdom of God in redemption. He is truly immortal and invisible, God only wise. And this divine wisdom, this wise God, speaks to us in Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs 8. And divine wisdom says to us, blessed is the man who listens to me. Blessed is the man who watches daily at my door, who waits at my doorway for me. For whoever finds me, that is divine wisdom, the wise God, the only wise God, whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But whoever fails me, Whoever fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death, declares the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, it matters before God whether we walk in wisdom or foolishness. And so let me encourage you to take seriously, to not just let it pass by you, when Paul says, look Carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, perhaps you're here this morning, maybe you came to to witness a baptism, maybe you came to simply be with a friend or family member, maybe you wandered in and you don't know how you ended up where you are happens. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first let me say we are so glad that you've joined us. 
We're glad you've gathered with us today to learn about divine wisdom, to hear wisdom from God's word. You need to know that in God's wisdom, he created you, that he is the author of your life, and he has authority over your life. And in God's wisdom, he has so ordered your steps in such a way that you are here with us this morning and how thankful we are that he's done that. We are glad you are with us today. I wonder what you think about God and his wisdom. Friend, perhaps you think there is no God. Perhaps you think there is no God. Well, you need to know that the Bible says only the fool says in his heart that there is no God. You need to know that your rebellion against God is foolish. It's foolish. And friend, your rebellion is destined to fail. If you do not think of yourself as a fool today, then you will certainly know yourself to be a fool on that great day of judgment. But the good news, the good news is that even in your rebellion, your foolish rebellion against God, God sent forth wisdom in the flesh. Wisdom in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who walked the perfect path of wisdom, a path that you cannot walk in your foolish rebellion. And even more than that, it was the wisdom of God that Jesus Christ should die on a cross for rebellious sinners like you and me, for fools like you and me. And it was the power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, proving to us all, to us all, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Proving to us that the weakness of God is stronger than men, stronger than even death itself. So friend, turn from your foolish rebellion. Turn from your foolish rebellion and give yourself by faith to Jesus Christ who is the very wisdom of God to those who are being saved. Trust in Jesus Christ today and be secure in God's wisdom for all eternity. And brothers and sisters, some of us may be like Christian and hopeful in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We've walked the way of wisdom for some time now, and if we're honest, we might think that we have, a, have it all figured out. Maybe for some of us, we're just a little bit bored. Bored with God, bored with his ways, bored with his way of wisdom. And so we've wandered off the way of wisdom into the bypath meadow, believing that we can short-circuit God's wisdom and God's way. Believing that we possess wisdom needed for the journey in and of ourselves. That we are safe by our own devices from the world and the flesh and the devil. Beloved in Christ, believing ourselves to be wise, we either have been or will be made a fool. So let me encourage you, brother, sister, to turn around Turn around out of that bypath meadow and walk the path of wisdom with the Lord Jesus Christ. He will walk with you along the way. He will walk in front of you to lead the way. And he has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us on the way of wisdom. 
Well, specifically, the Apostle Paul says to walk in wisdom in these verses, to walk in wisdom means to make the most of your time by using your mind. Paul says to, make the mo- to walk in wisdom means to make the most of your time by using your mind. Redeem the time, Paul says. Understand the will of the Lord, Paul says. Well, to redeem the time li- literally means to buy back or to own fully. Some of your translations may even say to make the most of every opportunity. And that's a really good way of putting it. That's the idea behind the phrase, redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity. Christians want to make the most of every opportunity. We receive each moment and each opportunity as a divine gift. We believe that God has a good purpose, Ephesians 1.9. God has a perfect plan, Ephesians 1.10. God works all things according to the counsel of his divine wise will, Ephesians 1.11. And so because we believe that, we, be- we receive every moment as the divine purpose and plan and will of God. And we are faced in every moment and with every opportunity, with this choice, whether we will live for the world and the flesh and the devil or whether we will redeem the time to the glory of God. You may, be, you may know about Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. I think Travis mentioned this a sermon or two ago. Jonathan Edwards, that great American Puritan Uh, who wrote out, I believe at the age of 19, a list of resolutions. And it was a very long list, as Puritans do, with lots of footnotes and subpoints. If I recall correctly, I think resolution six, at 19, Jonathan Edwards said, and this is perhaps my life quote, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Isn't that good? Resolve to live with all my might to make the most of every opportunity to redeem the time while I do live. He goes on elsewhere in other resolutions to say to, that he is going to redeem or, or make the most of every opportunity insofar as he can accord it with the will of God. Well, what is he doing? He's taking Ephesians 5, 15, 16, and 17, and he's writing it out in resolutions. And I would encourage you to read them. Read them and do them. Jonathan Edwards was a wonderful, godly man of the faith. We redeem the time for God's glory. But did you notice that Paul says we redeem the time because the days are evil? Or as Edwards would say, I'm going to live with all my might while I do live. In other words, as long as I live, which is a a definite amount of time, these days are evil. Death is coming. Hell is, is moving. We redeem the time because the days are evil. The fact that we live in a wicked world where it is also true that God has a good purpose and a perfect plan and is working all things, even evil things, God is working all things according to the counsel of his wise will. The fact that we live in such a world is mysterious. There is no doubt that it's mysterious. But I think that Paul here is telling us, redeem the time because the days are evil, because it's also motivating. It's mysterious, but it's also motivating. Redeem the time. Why? Because the days are evil. 
And we could say so much about this great mystery. But one thing in particular that needs to be said is that we need to be motivated to make the most of every opportunity. We need to be Christian, commanded to make the most of every opportunity that God sovereignly gives us in this wicked world. Every opportunity to walk in love toward God and your neighbor. Every opportunity to walk in light, confessing our own sins and exposing the sins of this wicked world. Every opportunity to walk in wisdom. No matter what we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, every opportunity lived in every moment for the glory of God. Therefore, with this immense opportunity, with this immense opportunity to glorify God in these evil days, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. Do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. Wisdom is more than intellect, that's true, but it is not less than understanding and comprehension. We are to understand, to comprehend the will of the Lord. Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may discern what is the will of the Lord, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of the Lord. I wonder if that scares you, that intimidates you. The will of the Lord can sometimes be scary for Christians. We are not so sure how to discern or understand the will of the Lord. It is mysterious. It's spiritual. Uh, we just aren't very confident to think that we could understand it or comprehend it. But the Apostle Paul here says not to act like a fool, but instead to understand, comprehend the will of the Lord. In other words, he assumes we can know the will of the Lord. We can know it. Brothers and sisters, God's will for you is not mysterious or ephemeral. It's rather plain and direct. God's will for you is rather plain and direct. You know, the Bible speaks of God's will in, in two primary ways. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is very instructive for us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 speaks of God's hidden will and God's revealed will. God's hidden will and God's revealed will. So in Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So there, in that portion of 29, 29, it has in mind God's hidden or secret will that he has decreed from all eternity. That, that this will that providentially orders all things and directs all things and governs all things and disposes of all things. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And then the second half of 29, 29. But the things that are revealed are for you and your children. The things that are revealed are for you and your children that we may do them. That we may do them. This is God's revealed will. So brothers and sisters, God will not hold you accountable for not doing some sort of ephemeral and hidden will that you cannot know. He will not hold you accountable for that. But God will hold us accountable for understanding and for doing the revealed will of the Lord in Scripture. Think about how freeing that is. 
how freeing it is to know that we can know with sufficient specificity the revealed will of the Lord. We need not be anxious or afraid. God has spoken to us plainly in his word. So let us understand it and let us do it. We do not, as Kevin DeYoung has said, we do not have to rely on dreams or visions, on fleeces or impressions, on open doors or random Bible verses, on casting lots or liver shivers. No, we don't need to look for writings in the sky or any other spiritualized Christianese. We don't need that. The revealed things that God has given us in the Bible are sufficient for us to know the will of the Lord. Now, lest any of you misunderstand, which is as much my fault as anybody's, now lest any of you misunderstand, I'm not saying that the answer to every single one of your questions in life is found explicitly in the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. Questions like where should you live? What job should you take? Who should you marry? Should you be an Aggie or a Longhorn? None of these questions are answered expressly in the Bible. Except probably the last one. Psalm 75.10 does say that the Lord will cut the horns off the wicked. So I take that as instructive. I'm just trying to understand the will of the Lord, okay? But listen, the Bible may not have a specific answer to your circumstantial question. But the Bible does have all the words from God that are sufficient and necessary for you to walk in wisdom. All the words that you need to walk in wisdom can be found in God's word. You can't get more direct, for instance, than 1 Thessalonians 4.3. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, I, I wondered if some of you were thinking, is Sam gonna reference 1 Thessalonians 4.3? Well, here you go. It is God's will for you to be sanctified. You can't get much more clear than that. It is God's will for you to be holy, to be sanctified. That's just one verse that is sufficient to tell you what God's will is for you. So beloved, the only way to understand the will of the Lord is to understand and apply the word of the Lord. Incidentally, for the, the youth that's in the room and college students, we've had a lot of college students visiting lately and we're very glad about that. For the youth and the college students in this congregation, this is critically important for you to understand. God is not playing hide and seek with your future. God is not playing hide and seek with his will for your life. You don't have to be anxious about God's will for your life in the future, or whether you'll please him with some sort of mystical understanding. Take it from a man who has spent many, many years wrestling with that exact thing. Take great comfort. Take great comfort in knowing that the secret things belong to God. They belong to him. They don't belong to you. And he is good. And he does good. And so you can trust him with these things, these secret things. And know that the revealed things are for you and your concern. There is plenty in the Bible that you will spend the rest of your life trying to understand and apply. Plenty of wisdom to light the path of your life that you need not worry yourself with the secret things of God. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, that goes for every one of us. Maybe you're a young young mother or a young father, a young family, a single, middle-aged couple, older saints, whatever your circumstance in life may be, let me tell you and encourage you that you need not stress or be anxious and worry about the secret things of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He's a God of a mysterious providence, that's true. But behind every frowning providence, what does the hymn say? He hides a smiling face. So you can trust him with the secret things. Let me encourage you too to to study and to understand the revealed word of the Lord. And to press press on and in confidently together as you seek wise counsel from brothers and sisters in the church. God has given us sufficient words that we can walk in wisdom in this life. And as we do that, I'm not saying that's an easy thing. Sufficiency doesn't equal efficiency, right? Sufficiency doesn't equal efficiency. So as we do that, beloved, as we seek to understand and apply the revealed word of God, as we seek to grow in our own sanctification, we will need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We will need to be filled with the Spirit of God. Let's look at Ephesians 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 18, Paul explicitly admonishes us not to get drunk. Drunkenness is a sin, and you ought not do it. Do not get drunk. But I think what Paul's doing here is is bigger than just saying, don't get drunk. Because he contrasts it with being filled with the Spirit. So I think what Paul's doing is he's saying, the foolish way of drunkenness and debauchery well, it's, it's different than the wise way of being filled with the Spirit. In other words, to be filled with spirits is foolish wickedness. But to be filled with the Spirit is holiness and the way of wisdom. To be filled with spirits and drunkenness is to lose control over your mind and to waste your time. The Spirit-filled life, however, produces the fruit of love and joy, of peace and patience, of kindness and goodness, of faithfulness and gentleness, and of self-control. Self-control. You lose your control in drunkenness when you're filled with the the spirit of drunkenness. But when you're filled with the spirit of God, you have self-control. The only way that anyone can redeem the time in the midst of evil days, the only way that anyone can understand the revealed will of the Lord is to be filled with the spirit of the Lord. You may recall that earlier in Ephesians, Paul said that, that Christians, in Ephesians 1, Paul said that Christians are sealed with the Spirit. They're sealed with the Spirit. And, and, and in that context, Paul's saying that at your moment of conversion, the Spirit of Christ marks you out as a Christian. He stamps you as a Christian. But here, Paul is commanding an ongoing filling of the Spirit. You may be marked out as a Christian, but you need to be filled with the Spirit. And what exactly is it that Paul means? This is a highly debated text. 
Uh, so it may be hard for us to understand what is going on here. I don't think it's very, very difficult, frankly, but here, here's, here's what I think Paul's saying. Be filled with the Spirit in the Greek has a tense of the present continual. So in other words, you were sealed at your moment of conversion. You were justified, righteous in Christ. And now as an adopted son or daughter of, of God, you are to walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. It's present. It's an ongoing, continual act of the Spirit of God in your life. Be filled with the Spirit, meaning it's ongoing. It's an ongoing reality. And it's meant to carry you along the Christian life to walk in wisdom and walk in love and walk in light. Christians, we should seek continually to be filled with the Spirit, to be permeated with the Spirit of God, to empower us to walk in these ways, to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. This is unique phrasing. It's the only portion of Scripture that has this kind of unique phrasing because it's a present continual and it's a passive command. A passive command. So how does that work? Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Or some of your translations may say, let us continue being filled with the Spirit. Let us continue being filled. We're commanding you to continue being filled with the Spirit, but you can't have the Spirit fill you. He's sovereign. He will fill you as he wishes. How, how does this work? Paul's commanding this, yet it's the Spirit that fills us. It's not us that does something. Well, I, I, think, I think that something that's helpful for us is to look at other passages of Scripture that might help us understand what's going on with Paul's words here. So we look to Colossians 3. If you would just turn to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, um, just a couple of uh, books over. Colossians 3, verse 16. Paul here is saying a very parallel passage. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let us be continually filled with the Spirit. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So you see there's some parallel issues here. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, there's some parallels. And it seems to me that what Paul is saying here, if we look at the fruit of being filled with the Spirit and letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you, the fruit is the same. The fruit is the same. And so I think it's right to say that we can seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God by dwelling in the Word of God. We can seek to be filled by the Spirit of Christ by letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. You see the connection? Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, a wonderful godly pastor and professor, he says it this way. He says, The way in which we obey the command to be filled with the Spirit is by responding rightly to the Word of Christ, by making room for its influence, giving our minds to its truths, our heart to its teaching, and our wills to its obedience. To be under the influence of the Word is to place ourselves under the Lordship of the Spirit. And why wouldn't it be that way, brothers and sisters? The Spirit of God, who has inspired the Word of God, works through the Word of God to fill us with the Spirit of God. So be filled with the Spirit by dwelling in the Word. But, but I just want to also point out, if any of you have problems with how I've done that, 
we'll take it up later. But let me just point out that Paul doesn't actually tell us how to be filled with the Spirit in this text. He doesn't tell us. He just says, be filled with the Spirit. But he does give us evidence of being filled with the Spirit. So he doesn't give us a how. He gives us evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Drunken debauchery leads to wasting your time and losing your mind. But being filled with the Spirit, Paul says, leads to singing souls. To singing souls. To thankful tongues. And to humble hearts. Singing souls and thankful tongues and humble hearts. Beloved, I wonder if you have ever given yourself a spiritual checkup that included asking yourself the question, am I singing joyfully, wholeheartedly in the midst of the congregation? Christian, nobody else. I'm not talking to anyone else. Christian, are you singing joyfully and wholeheartedly in the midst of a congregation? Are you making melody to the Lord in such a way in your heart that it overflows in your mouth, out of your mouth? Listen, it is of relatively little importance who stands on a platform and leads you in song. It is of immense, what does Paul say? Be filled with the Spirit by singing. It's of immense importance that you, Christian, that you are making a melody in your heart to the Lord and singing wholeheartedly unto God. It's of much greater importance what is happening in the congregation than it is what is happening on the platform. Be filled with the Spirit by singing. Some of you know how much of a stickler I am for congregational singing, and let me just say, this is exactly why. I want us all to be filled with the Spirit of God be addressing one another in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Half-hearted singing is not pleasing to the Lord. So be filled with the Spirit, beloved, and sing. Sing. And not only should we sing, but we should be filled with the Spirit with thankful tongues. We should sing because our hearts are so overwhelmed with thankfulness unto God. Grumbling and complaining is foolishness when the word of Christ by the spirit of Christ dwells within you. When we receive every moment, even the difficult ones, even the mysteriously difficult, hard moments that so many of you are experiencing even now, when we receive every moment as a gift from the hand of a good and wise father, how can we grumble and complain? And I'm preaching to myself here, just so you know. Beloved, be filled with the Spirit by giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that, oh, that we would be thankful like that. That we would be thankful in such a way. That we would be thankful that, that for all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ today if we are not thankful today, how will we be thankful on that day? If we are not worshiping and singing and making melody to the Lord now, how will we do it then? Be filled with the Spirit and have thankful tongues. Do not harden your grumbling hearts, brothers and sisters, but be thankful and submit to one another out of fear of the Lord and reverence for Christ. 
Verse 21 is one of those hot potato verses, depending on how you want to argue Paul means in the rest of chapters 5 and 6. I don't think, surprise, shocking, I don't think it's very difficult to understand. Submit to one another. Humble yourselves. I think a better translation would even be submission carries a lot of baggage. And so prepare yourself for October whenever we do 522. Submission carries a lot of baggage. So maybe a better translation would be humble your hearts towards one another. Humble your hearts towards one another. Even as you humble yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21 is not an egalitarian verse. Paul is not telling us the way of wisdom is being filled with the Spirit by submitting to one another and no one is ever taking lead or ahead of something. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the way of wisdom is being filled with the Spirit by humbling your hearts before the Lord and before each other. And Paul is going to spend the rest of Ephesians giving us practical examples of wise and godly and Spirit-filled lives lived out in marriage and in the family in the home, and in the world. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to settle this in your heart even now. Submission to right authority is a godly act of a humbled heart. Submission to right authority is evidence of a spirit-filled life. And so, beloved... Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit by having singing souls and thankful tongues and humbled hearts. Well, if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, then you know how it goes for Christian and hopeful. And as we conclude, let's consider how it goes for them as they continue in Bypath Meadow. Christian and hopeful are on their way in Bypath Meadow. They think that they found a better way off the way of wisdom, off the way to the celestial city. They've taken the meadow path because they believe it will be easier than the way. But as they continue in the meadow, following after vain confidence, they are imprisoned by the giant despair. And on a Sunday morning, started Saturday night, on a Sunday morning, while in prayer, Christian cried out, What a fool I am. What a fool I am thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, I understand the will of the Lord, I I know that it will open any lock in doubting castle. And so Christian and hopeful stand up And they get that key and they unlock the dungeon doors and they walk again on the path of wisdom, keeping in step with the spirit until they arrived at the celestial city. And my guess, even though this was a long time before Stuart Townend wrote My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness and the Getty sung it for us, my guess is that Christian and Hopeful would have been singing My Heart is Filled with with thankfulness to him who walks beside, who floods my weaknesses with strength and causes fears to fly, whose every promise in his word is enough. It's enough for every step I take, 
sustaining me with arms of love and crowning me with grace. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who reigns above, whose wisdom is my perfect peace, whose every thought is love. For every day I have on earth is given by the king. So we ought to redeem the time. So I will give my life, my all, to love and follow him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit. We pray that you would teach us to number our days, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to redeem the time because the days are evil. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may understand your will in your word. Return to us, O Lord, how we long for you and have pity on us in these evil days. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days, that we may make melody in our hearts that overflow in songs of praise to you, our great God. Make us thankful for every day that is given to us from your kind hand and let us work, let your work be evident in this place, in this church. And may your glorious power be at work in your beloved children. We humble ourselves before you and we pray the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. For Jesus' sake, amen.